You're going to love this. Just love it. From Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 91.7 FM, KYAQ on the Oregon Central Coast, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, on Stitcher, on TuneIn, on iTunes, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week, and many, many more, by the way. Welcome to it. This is your broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <clears throat> You're slightly under the weather, but a friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. An all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Glad you could join us here for another thrilling adventure. Uh, and like I say, I am under the weather, so please excuse the uh, the voice, the occasional throat clearing. Bit of a summer cold has got me. That'll teach me to get on an airplane. See? See, Desi Doyen? That's why I don't like flying on planes. You always come home sick. Well, you that's do. All. Well, yeah. All right. <laughs> Uh, I do, and <clears throat> I'm paying the price for it. Uh, okay, we got a lot to get to uh, here today, uh, including uh, Dan Riffle, former prosecutor, now a policy director at the uh, Marijuana Policy Project, is going to be here to talk pot. We're gonna so uh, so you can uh, get ready, get ready, stoners, light it up in a few minutes uh, because we're going to be talking about marijuana policy and. Some big news uh, on that front. Uh, boy, if you're not paying attention, and it's easy to not pay attention to this one because I have not seen a lot of coverage of it uh, lately in the mainstream media, but we had um, a whole bunch, a whole series of votes on Wednesday in the U.S. House led by Republicans uh, concerning marijuana. It's being called the Marijuana Votorama. So we will be talking about the Marijuana Votorama in a little bit, and, uh, you know, it, well, it's part of my progressive age theme that I've been talking about lately. We'll get to that in a minute. But uh, first, federal government suffers, suffers a massive hacking attack. According to AP, China-based hackers, and the uh, evidence for the China-based part of it seems to be somewhat weak, but in any event, China-based hackers are suspected of breaking into the computer networks of U.S. government personnel office and stealing uh, the U.S. government personnel office, stealing identification information of at least 4 million federal workers. According to officials on Thursday, the Department of Homeland Security said in a statement that data from the Office of Personnel Management and the Interior Department had been compromised. The FBI is conducting an investigation to identify how and why this occurred, according to the statement. 
The hackers were believed to be based in China, said Susan Collins, a senator from uh, from Maine, a Republican, a U.S. official who declined to be named because he was not authorized to publicly disclose the data breach, said it could potentially affect every federal agency. Now, I don't know if it's true or not, and I don't know if China had anything to do with it. But this is the same government that has told you and will tell you, and this is why we bring this up every single time that it comes up, that has told you and will tell, tell you that they are perfectly capable of running uh, electronic elections that use the Internet, of doing Internet voting systems, which they are pushing for more and more, despite the fact that they can't protect a single government agency. Also, you may remember in, uh, in November, a DHS contractor disclosed another cyber breach that compromised the private files of more than 25,000 DHS workers and thousands of federal employees. We talked just a few days ago about uh, another hack at the IRS website uh, where uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, records from taxpayers were, uh, were taken by hackers. Again, I don't know. I don't care who did it. What I care about is this same government is the one that's saying, uh, while we can't protect every single federal government agency from the FBI to the Department of Justice to the uh, Department of Defense, the CIA to the IRS to DHS, while we can't protect that, your local election official will have no problem running your elections through internet voting in the near future. And, oh, yes, that's because they use state-of-the-art, state-of-the-art uh, security to keep your uh, elections from being uh, interfered with by hackers. As a matter of fact, Congressman Adam Schiff, ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, called this latest hack, quote, shocking because Americans may expect that federal computer networks are maintained with state-of-the-art defenses. Well, maybe they are. But state-of-the-art defenses can be hacked, as can your vote when you do it electronically. Don't do it. Don't be stupid. Don't be fooled by these people lying about uh, your Internet votes and uh, how, oh, it's all we use, state-of-the-art encryption technology. You have nothing to worry about. This is the same thing that the military uses. Which military? The one that's been also been hacked? All right. Had to get that out of my system. Uh, the uh, Speaking of getting this out of my system, boy, oh boy, did Hillary touch a nerve yesterday in her, uh, her speech about voting rights and uh, restoring so many of the rights that have been taken away from voters around the country. Uh, we played extended uh, clips from her uh, from her speech at T Texas Southern University in Houston yesterday. But here's just a quick reminder. This stuff, man, this stuff could have been ripped off the pages of Bradblog.com, frankly. Uh, so when I heard it, I wasn't all that impressed. I was like, yeah, I know. I've been saying that for years. And then I just realized, man, this is the, one of the leading presidential candidates who is saying this, who is using this kind of rhetoric. Good for her. What is happening is a sweeping effort to disempower and disenfranchise people of color, poor people, and young people from one end of our country to the other. Because since the Supreme Court 
eviscerated a key provision of the Voting Rights Act in 2013, many of the states that previously faced special scrutiny because of a history of racial discrimination have proposed and passed new laws that make it harder than ever to vote. Correct. They have. They are making it harder, not than ever. It was harder during the Jim Crow era. But certainly uh, since the Jim Crow era, uh, they have worked, uh, Republicans have worked uh, with these new laws since the Voting Rights Act was gutted to make it harder to vote than ever. And man, oh man, did this touch off a firestorm. She called out by name some of her uh, potential opponents if she should win the nomination. And uh, if uh, Rick Perry of Texas, Scott Walker of Wisconsin, Chris Christie of New Jersey, uh, Jeb Bush of Florida. She called them out. She called them out for what uh, they had done to restrict the franchise, and good for her for doing so. It's not partisan, by the way, to call out people who are taking away rights from fellow Americans. You know, when a photo ID uh, restriction is is uh, keeps 600,000 voters, legal legally registered voters, from being able to vote in the state of Texas, it's going to affect Republicans as well. This is about rights. This is not about uh, party or partisanship. Maybe it is. I don't know. For for a lot of the Democrats who are who are filing suits, but for me, when I talk about it, this is about rights. This is about right and wrong. This is not about left and right. This is not about Republican versus Democratic. Uh, here's how Chris, well, John Kasich, the governor of Ohio, uh, <laughs> accused Hillary Clinton of, quote, dividing the country by talking about expanding voter access. And Chris Christie, of course, uh, a former prosecutor himself, so he knows better when he says this BS, called her out uh, for claiming that uh, she wanted to see more voter fraud, and that's why she was calling on uh, for uh, expanding the franchise. Here's Chris Christie when he was asked about her speech. So Hillary Clinton attacked you on voting rights yesterday. Do you have any response to her comment? Yeah, listen, you know, um, Secretary Clinton, um, Secretary Clinton doesn't know the first thing about voting rights in New Jersey or in the other states that she attacked. And uh, my sense is that she just wants an opportunity to, have, you know, commit um, uh, greater acts of voter fraud around the country. Wow. So, uh, you know, I'm not worried about her. Opinion. Wow. Hillary Clinton wants to commit not just acts of voter fraud, but greater acts of voter fraud. Really, Governor? What acts of voter fraud has she committed in the past? And what acts of, of voter fraud have occurred because uh, b because someone has not uh, turned in a, a photo ID under one of these Republican photo ID restrictions? Because so far, when every Republican governor and state has had to go to court to defend these photo ID restrictions, every single one of them has been unable to find any actual voter fraud that occurred due to a lack of a photo ID a narrowly defined photo ID, as these Republicans are putting in place. Hillary Clinton was absolutely right. And believe me, I'm no, I'm no fan of Hillary Clinton. But she was absolutely right in calling these guys out for what they are. Con men who can't win elections on issues, so they're trying to win it by keeping voters from being able to access the voting booth. I call on Republicans at all levels of government with all manner of ambition 
to stop fear-mongering about a phantom epidemic of election fraud and start explaining why they're so scared of letting citizens have their say. Well, they're not going to explain it, but I'll explain it. Because if citizens have their say, they will vote those Republican, uh, they will vote them out of office. See how I watched my language there, Desi Doyen? Are you impressed? They will vote them out of office. They will turn them away in droves. So they have to keep them out of the voting booth. They have to lie about what it is that they're actually trying to do. Because guess what? Americans uh, don't like Republican policies. New New York Times CBS News poll finds exactly what other previous polls have found recently. Here's some examples. 85% of Americans favor requiring employers to offer paid sick leaves. 80% favor requiring employers to offer paid leave to parents of new children. 71%, 71, but these are huge Huge majority. 71% support raising the federal minimum wage to $10.10 an hour. 68% support raising taxes on those making more than a million dollars a year. 66% say money and wealth in this country should be more evenly distributed among more people. 57% say government should do more to reduce the gap between rich and poor. These are huge majorities, huge majorities that agree with progressive positions, which are now finally, finally beginning to be picked up by Democrats. Sort of, kind of, to some extent, at least by uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And now, because of that, I would argue Hillary Clinton. Uh, We'll see how much she actually means it. Actions speak louder than words, but she's saying her words are saying the right things. And Republicans know this. Republicans, uh, Republican voters, as well as elected officials, oppose action on all of the above. That same poll finds that uh, unlike Americans overall, independents included, 64 percent of Republicans think government should not be doing more to reduce the gap between rich and poor. That mirrors a uh, a Washington Post poll that found the same thing. Republicans are out of step with the American people. They will tell you that this is a center-right country or all manner of nonsense, but they are wrong. They are lying, and they know they are lying, by the way. That's why they want to keep you from being able to vote. Because they are disappearing. A Gallup poll this week shows that the percentage of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents who describe themselves as both social and economic conservatives has dropped to 42%, the lowest level Gallup has measured since 2005. The second largest group of Republicans, 24%, see themselves as moderate or liberal or both on both social and economic issues. While just 20% of all Republicans are moderate or liberal on social issues, but conservative on economic ones. In other words, the, uh, the, the electorate is shrinking for these people. The, the number of people that believe that they are both socially uh, and economically conservative is disappearing. These people are going away. And by the way, <clears throat> these are people who don't even understand what the hell socially uh, conservative or economically conservative actually mean. These are people who will say that they're, uh, they're socially conservative or they're economically conservative, but they believe in the progressive positions on the economy. 
when they're specifically asked about those positions. So, yes, we are at the dawn of a progressive age. We are beginning to see health care as a universal right for all, marriage equality in every state, uh, the move to increase the minimum wage, paid sick leave, paid family leave, free college tuition, restructuring uh, student loans, immigration reform, breaking up the banks, ending the carbon age, the end of coal and oil and their replacement with renewables, criminal justice reform, election reform, as Hillary Clinton called for. Yes, universal voter registration could add 50 million voters uh, to the rolls immediately across the country. We've already seen it in Oregon. We're going to now see it in other states. Like it or not, right-wingers, we are seeing a progressive age in this country. And that includes, by the way, the end of the drug war and specifically the end to the prohibition on marijuana. Get used to it, uh, extremers and right-wingists. The progressive age is beginning. Maybe you only heard it here first, but you have heard it. and We're going to continue talking about it uh, until the rest of the world figures it out. We're going to come back and talk with Dan Riffle about some of those progressive, some of those progressive uh, marijuana policies that even Republicans are realizing they better get on board with. I'm Brad Friedman. Much more Bradcast straight ahead as long as my voice holds out. Please stay tuned. You know, it's not even clear to me that that song is actually about getting stoned. But uh, but that's how fast and loose we play around here. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Uh, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. A bit under the weather here. I will have to ask our next guest if uh, maybe marijuana might help me uh, get rid of this summer cold. I don't know. Uh, thanks for sticking with us here. Uh, we mentioned in the past, uh, in the last segment, uh, that we are, I've been arguing for a while, seeing the beginning of a progressive age. And now please don't confuse progressivism with democratism uh, or even liberalism. Uh, they're not the same. Uh, progressive, you know, goes back to uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, the, was the Republican who started the Progressive Party. Uh, in the meantime, out here in Los Angeles... I heard a few years back that we have more pot clinics than Starbucks. Uh, medicinal marijuana is now allowed in uh, in California and uh, at least in L.A. And I wasn't sure if that was right. And then I looked around and I did a Google search and actually there was about three Starbucks within a, 
a, a mile square of my house or so, and there was about a dozen pot clinics uh, in that same area. Now, the L.A. City Council has been a bit uh, schizophrenic, let's say, about this uh, measure. A lot of clinics have opened up, and then they have shut down a lot of clinics. We've gone back and forth in this state about uh, possibly moving towards uh, legalize, fully legalizing uh, marijuana, recreational marijuana. But uh, there is no doubt that uh, as a progressive issue around the country, we're now looking at 23 states that have some kind of legalization. Four states have uh, fully recreational pot use, Alaska, Oregon, Colorado, Washington, and those states that have begun making uh, pot available on a recreational basis are kind of now rolling in money. Uh, have increased revenues, and you've got uh, Republicans even looking at those states saying, well, wait a minute, you know, without having to raise taxes, we can bring in a lot of money to our coffers. So the, the, I think the, the legislative balance on this issue is changing, and it is changing quickly, and we saw evidence of that this week in the U.S. House. Uh, as uh, Tim Devaney at The Hill wrote this week, marijuana advocates have their sights set on legalization Federally, after lawmakers approved a number of pot-friendly measures on Wednesday in a government spending bill. The marijuana voterama, as someone uh, coined it, was capped off by a provision that would prohibit the Department of Justice from interfering with state medical marijuana laws. But it's a marijuana amendment that was rejected that has pot advocates even more excited, a provision that would have blocked the Justice Department from interfering with state laws permitting the use of recreational marijuana, and it came just a few votes shy of passing. The measure would have essentially ended the federal prohibition on pot, advocates say. To talk about that and much more, I'm happy to be joined by the Director of Federal Policies, at the Marijuana Policy Project, Dan Riffle joins us. He is uh, ahead of the lobbying efforts on Capitol Hill for the organization. Prior to that, he worked for three and a half years as a legislative assist uh, analyst in the state policy department, where clearly he has uh, had some considerable success. Dan Riffle, sir, welcome to the broadcast. Happy to be here. By the way, that was a heck of an introduction. If this radio thing doesn't work out for you, there's a there's a home for you at the Marijuana Policy Project. Oh, okay, thank you. I'm in. I might need it at this rate because uh, uh, if I lose my voice, I can't do radio. But I guess I could uh, make. I'm the not pitch. aware of any double-blind, <laughs> placebo-controlled studies for for common colds. But you know, if you're having trouble sleeping, yeah. you know, maybe uh, okay. a little nauseous. Yeah. You know, oh. there's. Okay. There's some study out. There's some research out there. Good to know. All right. With all of that said, and since my voice is quickly failing, sir, uh, can you explain uh, first before we get into what actually happened in the uh, in the House this week? Uh, what what is the Marijuana Policy Project? How long have you guys been around, and and what is uh, what is your aim? Well, we just had our uh, 20th anniversary gala earlier this year, so we've been around for about 20 years, and our aim is to see that marijuana is taxed and regulated and treated more or less like alcohol. Maybe not exactly. Um, you know, they're not exactly the same drugs, so they shouldn't be treated exactly the same, but, you know, the general idea that adults who want to use marijuana responsibly ought to be able to do so without being arrested and prosecuted or punished in any way. Um, we don't think that marijuana should be available to kids. We don't think that you know, marijuana should be universally available. We do think it should be, you know, taxed, and there should be sensible regulations about when, where, and how it's sold and should be advertised. But 
you know, like I said, generally speaking, more or less the way that we treat alcohol. And that actually has always seemed to me to be a rather conservative position, conservative in the in the uh, classic sense of the word. Let people do what they want to do, uh, you know, tax them, but leave them alone. Uh, are you uh, and I don't know if, if uh, you can talk about this or not, but do you have a background as a Republican or a Democrat or anything else just to get a sense of where you are coming from and where your group is coming from? Yeah, that's actually a really great question. Uh, oh, I don't get asked you. that one often enough. So <laughs> I tend to be pretty liberal. Uh, I used to work in the Ohio legislature before I was a prosecuting attorney, uh, and I worked for a Democrat. And my views are pretty far left. Uh, but most of the folks in this organization are libertarians. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of you know sort of moderate, middle of the road folks who just don't like seeing their tax dollars wasted. Um, you know, there's there's people from all over the spectrum here at MPP, and what's really interesting for me as a you know political advocate is I go on the Hill, and I have to walk into you know Dana Rohrbacher's office, who mm-hmm. you know was a Reagan speechwriter and was a sponsor of our medical marijuana amendment, and then I have to go across the hall and talk to you know Jared Polis or Earl Blumenauer, who's got a bicycle lapel pin because he likes to bike to work and comes from Portland, and you know is, is about as liberal as a member of Congress can get. So. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a really, really interesting issue to work on. You can throw all of your you know, preconceived notions about liberal and conservative out the window. There are people from all over the spectrum who, who support this and you know, people from all over the spectrum who oppose it. So um, you know, it's not your traditional left, right, center, uh, you know, liberal, conservative issue. No, it's not. Not when you've got Dana Rohrbacher sponsoring a marijuana amendment. That's pretty amazing for anybody who knows who Dana Rohrbacher is. What, which, was his, which one was his uh, uh, amendment that Rohrbacher sponsored? So that- there were two that were really focused uh, you know, specifically on marijuana. There were a lot of marijuana-related amendments mm-hmm. and, and DEA-related things that happened the other day, but there were two that were focused on marijuana. One... The Rohrbacher Amendment, which uh, Congressman Sam Farr, who's a more liberal member from up the coast in California, mm-hmm. co-sponsored with him. That one says DOJ can't spend money interfering in state and medical marijuana laws. And then the other one that was introduced, which was sponsored by Congressman McClintock, another very conservative member uh, from California, mm-hmm. and then co-sponsored by Jared Polis, very liberal uh, Democrat from Colorado. That one said that DOJ can't spend any money to interfere in state marijuana laws period did include the word medical so it would have covered all it would have essentially said let states set their own policies and doj take a hands-off approach and that's kind of been the administration's policy over the last couple of years there have been some exceptions to that which is one reason why we want to have this amendment in place and then the other reason is that you know this administration uh you know this is this is prosecutorial discretion this is advice basically that the administration has given to doj this is not policy this is not law so, you know, we wanted to make sure that we got our amendment passed to provide some legal protections in place in case, you know, the next administration feels differently. And, um, you know, also just to sort of get a head count in the House and see where we're at. And, you know, we were very pleasantly surprised with the head count. Yeah, because the numbers seem to be changing quite quickly. We'll get into that in a moment. The uh, the measure from uh, Dana Rohrbacher and Sam, uh, Republican Dana Rohrbacher and uh, Democrat Sam Farr, uh, uh, that that passed for the first time last year, but it got, got 23 more votes this time around. That means that, uh, well, basically, what what does that mean? That it's a directive to the president, to the DOJ, to say, hey, in states where they have medical marijuana policies, the federal uh, ban on marijuana use should not be enforced. Is that what that says? Kind of. So the the amendment was on an appropriations bill. So, Mm -hmm. 
you know, the, the Congress every year has to pass a series of appropriations bills. Okay. How government agencies are funded. Congress unfortunately doesn't pass them often enough, which is why we wind up in shutdowns or, you know, sort of standoffs at, at the eleventh hour. But you know, they're they're trying to move things along here. So this was the Department of Justice's funding bill. Mm-hmm. It's actually it's CJS, so it's Commerce Justice Science. So it funds a few different agencies, but Department of Justice is one of them. And uh, the amendment that was passed was, it says, DOJ, here's your money, but you can't spend any of this money interfering in state medical marijuana laws. So it's kind of, it's not law, it's not policy, it's just, we call it a spending rider. Uh, It's one way that, you know, members of Congress like to get in, you know, their particular issues into broader, you know, must-pass legislation if they can't get, you know, a specific bill on their issue, you know heard in committee or moved to the floor. And it has to sort of be passed until it's a a law, an actual statute. It sort of has to be passed each year as part of these uh, spending bills when Congress decides how much money they're giving to the DOJ? Right. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. A lot of these writers are pretty common. They show up in the same appropriations bill every single year. They're included in the original draft of the bill when it, you know, begins debate in the House. Others like this one uh, that are... uh, at least traditionally, have been a little bit more conservative. You know, every year we have to find somebody to introduce it, lobby for it, mm-hmm. get it passed. And uh, but as as you said, uh, and as the Hill reports, the numbers are changing quickly. This this amendment yeah. that didn't pass from uh, Republican uh, Congressman Tom McClintock. Uh, and uh, Democrat Jared Polis. This would do a same thing, but it would essentially say uh, no money for uh, interfering with any state marijuana law, including recreational use of pot. That would, uh, would that not sort of give the federal go-ahead to uh, make it clear that any state who wants to pass recreational pot will not be interfered with by the federal government if that uh, amendment had passed or, or something like it in the future? Yeah, kind of. I mean, you know, more or less. I look at it as, as a litmus test for, you know, the vote on legislation to actually change the law. I mean, you know, you can only go so far with a spending rider. You know, marijuana would still be illegal even if we were to pass an amendment like that, which means that, you know, banks would still have a problem providing financial services, Mm -hmm. checking accounts to to the marijuana industry. Um, You know, tax code would still treat, you know, marijuana businesses differently than other businesses. Um, You know, I'm sure doctors would still be leery of prescribing or recommending something that's illegal under federal law. Um, so you know, I mean, it's it's not a uh, it's not a, a silver bullet that's going to solve all of our problems, but it is a good way for us to get you know to get that policy into law at least for a year, and you know, like I said, to get sort of a headcount on the House of where we stand and and what members support this, what members oppose this, and you know where we need to focus our efforts. And you bring up uh, something uh, that I think uh, most people don't realize, which is you're right. Uh, banks don't want to touch this because they realize that it's essentially it's, it's drug money. Uh, as they see it, as long as pot is uh, still a uh, Schedule One uh, narcotic, mm-hmm. um, so banks. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, pot uh, stores in Colorado, where it's now perfectly legal to sell, they're making cash hand over fist, and yet they have no place to put that cash. Still, is that the case, or do, uh, what? What do they do if they can't work with banks? I, they put it in a, in a safe in the back of the house and hope for the best. You know, they they pay their lawyers and their electricians and their plumbers and their accountants with sacks of money. They pay the tax bill by having a, you know, Brinks truck come by and pick up, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and drive it to the local auditor's office. Um, You know, I've heard of dispensaries in in Washington that pay somebody 
15 bucks an hour to literally spray cash with Febreze because they don't want it to smell like marijuana because if they take it to the bank, then the bank's onto them and they'll lose oh their checking account. But so, this is literally... It's a complete mess. <laughs> it's a complete mess. And it's really, it's one of the reasons why we're seeing the numbers shift so much in Congress because everyone recognizes that, you know, however you feel about marijuana, this is the law of the land in these states and it's causing serious public safety issues for these businesses to not have any access to the banking system. So, you know, when you look at the conflict between state and federal marijuana laws and what's driving change in Congress and support to, to deal with that issue, I think the banking issue is, is maybe paramount amongst them. But, you know, we've also seen people who are evicted from public housing because they use medical marijuana. We've seen, we, we just had a vote uh, over on the Senate and the other side where VA physicians are unsure what to do when veterans come to them with serious chronic pain conditions or, you know, uh, other conditions that maybe aren't war-related, but, you know, that medical marijuana can treat. You know, those VA providers don't know what they can do because this is still illegal under federal law. Because so they're barred. They're barred from law, right, Dan, from from recommending that or saying, yes, if, if pot makes you feel better uh, uh, physically. They're barred by ahead. VA policy, and that's what uh -huh. the vote was on, was to change VA policy. And mm -hmm. so we'll see at the end of the year. I mean, the, the amendment passed in uh, in committee, so we'll see at the end of the year whether it gets uh, you know included in, in the conference. But, yeah, the vote was to say to rescind a, a veteran Department of Veterans Affairs policy that says VA docs, even though this is legal in the state where you're practicing, you can't actually recommend medical marijuana to, to veterans. We're speaking with Dan Riffle, Director of Federal Policies at, Mar at the Marijuana Policy Project, or MPP.org. Uh, Dan, what changed here? I remember... Well, maybe I'm giving away how old I am, but I, I, you know, I remember Nancy Reagan. Just say no. That seems like it was just yesterday, and now we're counting the number of states that have not only allowed this uh, for for medical use, but now recreational use. It seems like something changed overnight. Uh, you know, what has changed? How, how has this tra uh, trajectory uh, changed so quickly? What would you attribute that to, Dan Ripple? You know, I think the Internet, uh, more than anything, I think it, it really empowers advocacy organizations like ours to get our message out. Uh, you know, people in the 80s, you know, all they saw was, you know, the government-funded ads, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, or, you know, all of the other sort of PSAs that, you know, really vilify marijuana. And, you know, we are talking about a drug here, a potentially harmful drug, so I'm not here to say that marijuana is harmless or anything like that, but... You know, the, the government has basically been overblowing the harms of marijuana for years. This is something that by any objective scientific metric is significantly less harmful than alcohol. It's not associated with violent and reckless behavior. Uh, it's not toxic, so you can't actually overdose, even though we see people, you know, die of alcohol poisoning every year on college campuses. No one's ever died of a marijuana overdose. Uh, you know, just the significant long-term health impacts from alcohol aren't there for marijuana, short or long-term, really. Uh, you know, the cost to society of someone abusing this drug is significantly less than someone abusing alcohol. So it just doesn't make any sense for us to have alcohol sold on every corner and advertised on every football game and freely available to anyone and everyone who wants it, and yet to punish adults who might prefer to use marijuana instead. So, you know, you take that, you take the fact that, you know, marijuana prohibition has just really failed. If, if you wanted to find marijuana in this society, the first place you would look is in a high school where it's universally available. Mm. We're, you know, throwing away millions of dollars, making hundreds of thousands of arrests every year of adults who, you know, are committing a nonviolent consensual crime, essentially. You know, we've got African Americans who are arrested eight times more often than whites, even though they use marijuana at the same rate. So, you know, pick your poison. There's any number of reasons why people are sick and tired of, you know, seeing their tax dollars wasted on a policy that just isn't working. 
And so, you know, we're able to get our message out now. People understand how badly marijuana prohibition has failed. People understand how much revenue there is out there and, you know, some of the benefits of taxing and regulating marijuana. And so we're seeing them move uh, in droves towards our position, and that is driving change in Congress uh, in turn. So, you know, you look at the Rohrabacher Amendment, for example. We first introduced that way back in 2003 and got only 150 votes. And from there, it took us seven tries over 10 years to pass it. This broader amendment that doesn't, it isn't limited to medical marijuana and, you know, would essentially protect Colorado, Oregon, Alaska, and Washington's legalization laws. We introduced it, and for the first time, it got 206 votes. So, you know, it's only going to take us another year or two to pass that measure as well on, on the current course. And I hate to—well, I, I had mentioned, I think, um, uh, marriage equality and, and uh, the similarity here, because I think that people uh, with marriage equality, you know, they, they see it happen. They realize, oh, this is not mandatory. We don't actually have to get gay married. And then they're okay with it. And I think in a similar way, uh, people have either known people who use pot or use it themselves. And they say, you know, everything Nancy Reagan told us uh, years ago— is simply not true, and so yeah, yeah, I. There's, I, I, there's well, a lot let me, of parallels, though. If you if you take the the graph for mm-hmm. same sex marriage, you know, support for same sex marriage, and you overlay it with the graph for support for legal marijuana, it's almost the exact same curve. Very interesting, and I hate to be the guy to challenge uh, the guy who works at the Marijuana Policy Project, but you said um, you didn't want to, you know, that that there are. Uh, that it is harmful in some ways. Let me press you on that, sir. How is it harmful, <laughs> marijuana lobbying guy? How is it? Yeah, uh, harmful? well, I, listen. There, you know, there are studies that show uh, marijuana can have a, a detrimental impact, particularly on the developing brain. So, people mm-hmm. who are you know under twenty-five or particularly under eighteen, uh, you know, there are similar studies that show the earlier you use marijuana, the more likely you are to abuse marijuana later in life. Um, so, you know, I mean, this is not something we don't want people. I don't think people should be under the influence of marijuana all day, every day. But, you know, if you come home from work and you like to enjoy some marijuana, you should be able to do that just as if you come home from work and you like to have a, a bottle of beer or a glass of bourbon. You ought to be able to do that as well. Early in the um, Obama administration, uh, the, the U.S. attorneys, the D- Department of Justice was actually cracking down on a lot of these Otherwise, legal dispensaries, uh, you know, where in, in states where medical marijuana was uh, was passed. I know that was certainly happening out here in California, even though the Obama administration, as I understand, had said not to prioritize the, the prosecution. And yet we saw it happening anyway. Was a my question for you, Dan, w- w- were, th- were those sort of rogue elements of the uh, of the DEA, the Department of Justice, uh, and has that continued or has that stopped now? Are these places, these dispensaries, uh, are these otherwise legal dispensaries being left alone at this point? Well, I'd say there were rogue elements on both sides of the equation. So with mm. medical marijuana, we're talking about something that was kind of, sort of legal at the time. And yeah. So the type of people who go into business when it's kind of, sort of legal to go into business you know, we're not talking about savvy Wall Street investors here. We're not talking about experienced entrepreneurs. We're talking about people who want to get rich quick selling marijuana. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of these businesses, and, you know, it's still kind of that way in California where it's really unregulated. A lot of these businesses were not uh, exactly the most scrupulous, uh, responsible businesses. And so, you know, some of them were shut down, uh, and deservedly so. But there are a lot of folks who are fully in compliance with state law on this issue and had no business being arrested, raided, prosecuted, and yet they were anyway. And I think that's because of, you know, as you said, some rogue elements within you know, the administration, I think particularly DEA. 
And that's one of the interesting things about the vote the other night is that, you know, the DEA really got crushed. And, you know, obviously a lot of it is because of the, you know, the sex scandal with the cartel-paid prostitutes, which was in the news you know, recently. And, right. and obviously the, the director of DEA lost her job over that. But I think at the same time, you look at the administration's policy on this. DOJ got the memo pretty quickly. There weren't a lot of major prosecutions of these folks. Um, you know, other Obama was saying right from day one, even before he was elected, that he wasn't going to use federal resources to circumvent federal law. It only took Holder a few months after uh, he was nominated and confirmed as Attorney General to put out a policy on this thing. You know, we shouldn't uh, use federal resources here on medical marijuana. But DEA, you know, those folks are career drug law, drug warrior, you know, uh, law and order, anti-drug folks. So they were kind of the last ones to get the memo. Uh, but they certainly got it loud and clear last week. We saw one amendment after another to strip funding away from DEA's budget and put it towards things like body cameras for police or uh, testing the backlog of, of rape kits that still exist or uh, providing treatment to victims of child and domestic abuse, uh, you know, things that, that are actually good uses of money instead of arresting and prosecuting people for something that's essentially a, a public health issue. And do you feel that this um, will make a difference, that they, the DEA actually will back off here, or do you expect there'll be some uh, dead-enders uh, among that organization that will continue to... Uh, well, I think we've harass. already seen them start to back off a yeah. little bit. I mean, okay. we get fewer and fewer calls. I see fewer and fewer news stories about DEA being involved in you know, raids of, of marijuana facilities. Mm-hmm. But you know, certainly, we passed this amendment last year, and you know, DEA kind of you know, poo-pooed it, but this year they've they've lost $25 million in funding, so, uh, you know, money talks. So uh, I, I expect them to get the message now. I, I hope so. I, uh, uh, Dan Riffle, i got just a minute or two left here. There's, man, there's so much I want to talk to you about. It's such an interesting topic. Uh, the, um, the private prison uh, lobby, uh, they make a lot of money from uh, drug enforcement, drug laws. Uh, is there resistance? I'm trying to figure out where the resistance is now. i got to figure that Republicans had been the resistance for a long time as part of that, you know, just say no, mm-hmm. war on drugs. Where is the resistance now? Who's stopping the wall from crumbling entirely and, uh, you know, returning this to a matter of, of really local control, the things that Republicans pretend to believe in on other topics. Yeah. I haven't seen a lot of involvement from the private prison industry. Uh, they did put out, I, there was a shareholder report, I think it was a couple of years ago, this got some traction in the news. There was a shareholder report that said something like, you know, states are legalizing marijuana, so that means fewer prisoners and less revenue for us. But in terms of them actually lobbying on Capitol Hill on this issue, I haven't really seen much of it. You know, there's a lot of conspiracy theorists that talk about big pharma or, um, you know, the alcohol industry lobbying against mm-hmm. marijuana, and I haven't seen that either. Mm. For the most part, the opposition comes from police, you know, the, the FOP, the National Association of Sheriffs and Police Chiefs. Uh, you know, those types of organizations are lobbying hard. So is the DEA on the Hill every day. And again, you know, these are folks who... The cynic would say, you know, it's for funding reasons because they're going to lose all of their money for drug interdiction task force mm. and, you know, the helicopter to go fly around and look for marijuana and all those sorts of things. So I, I think, you know, as a former prosecutor myself, I think it's folks who have spent their career in law enforcement and they just have a, you know, a just say no anti-drug mindset. And for them to say we should make marijuana legal is tantamount to saying, you know, my entire career I was making a mistake and I was wrong the whole time. So, you know, it's it's to be expected that those folks are going to be opposed to it. And then the other major group that lobbies against this is the uh, drug treatment group. 
So, again, the cynic would mm-hmm. say it's for financial reasons because they get a lot of folks referred by the court into mm-hmm. their system, so it's, you know, free money for them. Uh, but, you know, again, I, I think it's folks who, you know, because of the field that they've worked in their whole lives, you know, it's, they have to be they have to be of an anti-drug, uh, anti-marijuana mindset, and that kind of drives their perspective on the issue. Do you get the sense that uh, they believe that, well, you know, even if marijuana is, is perfectly legal, you know, there's still, uh, you know, coke and crack and heroin, you know, they'll have plenty to do. They'll have plenty to crack down on. But do they feel like, well, as soon as we make pot legal then people will realize, uh, oh, maybe all of this stuff should be none of our damn business and we should let people do what they want and instead, you know, use our public, our limited public funds to treat people rather than bust them and, sh- and throw them in jail. Is there that sense? Yeah, I mean, that it, well, there certainly is that sense. I think, you know, that you look at the American Academy of Addiction Medicine, for example, which is one of the big uh, obstacles out there. They, they give a ton of money and support, and their members are board members of uh, this group called Project SAM, Smart Approaches to Marijuana. So, you know, they're, they're one of the big obstacles, and their messaging on this is, you know, they'll look at organizations like the Drug Policy Alliance at Lobby, and they'll say, you know, the, the people who support marijuana legalization also support legalizing heroin and cocaine and other drugs. So, you know, where does it end? Um, but, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, what you just said, I think it's not about money for them. I think it's just about the fact that they, you know, are anti-drug because mm-hmm. of their, their viewpoint in their career arc. You know, if we, if we make marijuana legal and there are more marijuana users, ostensibly there is more need for marijuana treatment. Um, and, and there's no reason why we shouldn't use, you know, some of the tax revenue that we make from marijuana to put it towards not just treatment, but also, you know, education, honest, accurate, accurate education for young people, not, you know, the kind of nonsense that we see in their programs and other things, but, you know, honest treatment, or sorry, honest education, treatment resources, um, and, and education for problem users, there's, there's definitely room for that. So, you know, I don't think anybody foresees the treatment industry going extinct because of marijuana legalization. Last question before I let you go, Dan Riffle. Um... The uh, very quickly, uh, w- what kind of uh, money is now rolling into these states like Colorado who have uh, legalized drugs? And what are you hearing from neighboring states who must be looking at this, whether they're Republican or Democratic, looking at it and uh, seeing the hand over fist uh, tax dollars that are coming into these states, looking at their own budgets, their own budget shortfalls and saying, well, wait, we don't want uh, our people going over the border into Colorado buying their pot there. Why not do it here? What are you hearing on the ground from the states in that regard? Well, there's definitely a lot of that. I mean, I, I certainly think governors and legislators who are looking at this have dollar signs in their eyes. Uh, I don't think that they should. First of all, you know, the money that's rolling in in Colorado, it's significant. It's tens of millions. Um, you know, they're going to be able to build schools. They're going to be able to fix highways. They're going to be able to, you know, provide, like we said, honest and accurate treatment. And well, education. that sounds nice. <laughs> yeah, but it's not. If, if you look at the state budget as a whole, I mean, this isn't something that's going to close a shortfall. This isn't, uh, you know, this isn't a, a, a solution for all of your budgetary concerns for any state. Um, so the other reason why I don't think that, that governors or legislators should really look at this from a financial perspective is if you think about what creates most the most revenue, you know, you're talking about creating more marijuana users. The more the more revenue you get, that necessarily means the more marijuana that's being sold. And so, you know, I think the objective of the folks who, you know, for example, are passing cigarette taxes or alcohol taxes is to reduce uh, consumption of those products, and it's going to be the same thing for marijuana. I mean, we want to have education and treatment out there because we don't want people abusing or overusing marijuana. So, 
you know, I'm fully in favor of making marijuana legal, but then also having, you know, advertising restrictions in place, you know, smoking bans on, you know, regulating, you know, when, where, and how marijuana can be consumed and, and when, where, and how it can be sold. So, you know, I think that the, the strategy here should be to make marijuana legal in a way to reduce or at least mitigate the problems associated with marijuana, not to necessarily, you know, close a budget short hole or, you know, win the, win the lottery. Well, I'll tell you, Dan, I would have agreed with you on that comment about uh, these lawmakers who are, you know, putting these taxes on to tobacco and so forth because they want to reduce tobacco use. I would have agreed with you up until I started vaping instead of smoking, and I saw these very same lawmakers uh, trying to make it harder to vape, uh, which keeps people smoking uh, and really puts into question in my mind if they really do want people to stop smoking. But that's a topic for another day, I suspect. Uh, very interesting uh, to talk to you, uh, Dan. Uh, good luck with your uh, with your work there. Sounds like you guys are having great successes. I'd love to talk to you again about all of the above in uh, in the future, Dan. Happy to do so. Thanks for having me. Dan Riffle, Director of Federal Policies at Marijuana Policy Project. Check out him and his work at MPP.org. Well, that's some good and encouraging news today. What a nice change of pace. We're going to take a quick break and come back with some more good and encouraging news concerning Caitlyn Jenner and some guy who had been mocking her and why that guy may not be mocking her anymore. I'm Brad Friedman, under the weather, but still right here on your broadcast. Get on board. Yep. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Bradblog.com's Brad Friedman here with you. And uh, it was a stunningly optimistic Bradblog. Uh, Brad Friedman here at the end of the week. Maybe the it's the cold of, medicine. Or it could be the cold medicine, yeah. Or the beginning of the week whenever you're listening to this uh, Bradcast. Welcome back to it. We've got just a few minutes. I had mentioned at the top of the hour, and I'll give you a reason, by the way, to, to be optimistic yourself. But I had mentioned at the top of the hour um, the uh, this Gallup poll finding the uh, disappearing conservatives, conservatives, uh, people who consider themselves to be conservative on both liberal, on, on both social and economic issues. They find that a GOP candidate positioning himself or herself as conservative on both social and economic issues theoretically will appeal to less than half of the broad base of rank and file party members so even if then uh, that's what's amazing about this uh, this this primary that we're seeing where you've got these uh, republicans who are trying to get as far as they can to the right their own party their own republican party they will end up appealing to less than half of their own party so anyway, that's why they got to restrict voting. That's why they got to restrict uh, access to what their positions actually are. That's why they have to lie about what they actually believe in. 
But, you know, uh, let's leave you with a happy story today because I got one, and I love this story. Desi Doyen, I don't even know if you've heard about this one. Uh, an Oregon man, this is from uh, Travis Geddes, Geddes over at Raw Story. An Oregon man got an unexpected, uh, unexpected lesson in irony after posting a viral photo on Facebook criticizing the media coverage of Caitlyn Jenner's gender transition. Now, we haven't covered this at all, Bruce Jenner's transition to become Caitlyn but he, uh, Terry Coffey, a guy of, uh, of Salem, Oregon, posted a black and white photo on Monday showing what appears to be a, uh, it appears to show a World War II soldier trudging through mud, carrying on his back an apparently wounded soldier who was firing a pistol. And he wrote, as I see post after post about Bruce Jenner's transition to a woman, I hear words like bravery, heroism, and courage. Just thought I'd remind all of us what real American courage, heroism, and bravery looks like. And that's when he showed that photo of that wounded World War II soldier. The post rocketed across social media over the next day, says Travis Geddes, and has been shared by more than seven uh, shared more than seven hundred and fifty five thousand times. But Coffee said he learned a thought provoking lesson as he searched the photo's origins. In a follow up post the next day on Tuesday, Coffee said he had conducted a quick image search online and simply chose one that fit his words. But he decided after the post went viral to identify the photographer so he could give proper credit to his work. Then he wrote, quote, In an ironic twist, I have discovered that the photo is part of a documentary created by a man who was beaten nearly to death outside of a bar in 2000. The photographer, Mark Hogenkamp, spent nine days in a coma and suffered severe brain damage and other injuries, Coffey learned. Hogenkamp coped with his pain afterwards by creating an imaginary world set in World War II where he created the image that went viral years later that Coffey had shared. But Coffey was gobsmacked by something else that he learned. Why was he nearly beaten to death by five strangers, Coffey asked? Because... He, the photographer, Mark Hogenkamp, was a cross-dresser. He said, I could have chosen any one of hundreds of photos depicting bravery, but I chose this one, Coffey said. Do I think it was an accident? No, I don't. He said there was an obvious lesson. He said what happened to this man was cruel, wrong, and unforgivable, and that hate helps nothing. Love wounds no one, and God heals all and he added, irony makes you think. I'm very happy with that story. I like it, and I like it a lot. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to my guest today, Dan Riffle, former prosecutor, now policy director at Marijuana Policy Project. If you missed any portion of our program, including that great conversation with Dan Riffle, you can download all of our reports at bradblog.com, at Stitcher, at TuneIn, and at iTunes, where we hope you will leave us a good review so it makes it a little bit easier for others to find us. Uh, is that it? Yeah. You can drop me some email. Oh, there you go. Drop me some email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Also, find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitter at the Bradblog. Until we meet again... You can find me, of course, at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>